Philly, you are so wonderful and interesting. You deserve a local news podcast all your own. Check out the John Cast on the Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. KYW News Radio Original Podcasts. This is KYW News Radio in depth. I'm Matt Leon. What everyone feared would happen has happened. Russia has commenced an invasion of Ukraine. What do we know? How will the world react? What could happen next? Wanted to talk about all of this, so we caught up with Dr. Lisa Balione. She is a professor of political science and member of the International Relations Program at St. Joseph's University. And Dr. Melissa Chekars is an associate professor and chair of the Department of History at St. Joseph's University. So to start, and I'll start with you, Lisa, we talked a few weeks ago about what we were seeing and the possibilities. Boy, to me as a layman, this I feel like we are seeing the worst case scenario play out here. Uh, what say you? Yeah, it's 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 really, really depressing. I, I felt I texted a number of people last night saying it feels like 1939. I was wishing I could talk to my parents who have passed away to get some insight on what they how they would have seen this. Um, it, it, it is really bad. After we talked the weekend, right after I was so, uh, the, the Times was reporting increase of troops to uh, around Bel- in Belarus and surrounding Ukraine. So I was, I, I became really worried that what I told you three weeks ago was going to be wrong, that there would be um, a large scale invasion, and that looks like what we're seeing. It's it's sobering. It's frightening. Uh, there's no good way to talk about it. Same question to you, Melissa. Are what we are what we are seeing? Is it playing out as the the worst case scenario you could see to this point? Absolutely. Um, the last time we spoke, I had ended with hoping for peace, and I have been hoping for peace ever since. And even last night, hoping for peace that there was going to be a diplomatic through diplomacy, we would be able to get out of this situation. And this is absolutely a worst case scenario. This is a full scale invasion of Ukraine by Russia. Uh, this is the worst military action really in Europe since World War II. I mean, there was the, the wars in former Yugoslavia, which were also horrendous, but this is looking on, on, a, on an enormous scale with huge implications. Lisa, what is Vladimir Putin's goal here? I mean, is it to eventually, I mean, in his perfect world, does he want to reestablish the the USSR and bring everybody, all these former republics back into the fold? Well, it looks like in territorial terms, he at least is going after Ukraine and Belarus. I, I would expect Belarus will be soon since the since the troops are there and since for the last year plus, uh, really the uh, Belarusian leader has been been beholden to Russian support to hang on to his uh, his power. You know, again, as we talked, Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania are part of NATO, so they have that guarantee of the NATO response. Now, the really frightening thing, and you know, some are writing that that he also is seeking to show that NATO's response, or he will show ultimately that NATO's promise is a false promise. I believe 
that that will not hold that that to to in in other words that to go after the baltics would trigger i mean we we talked about this as the it isn't the worst <laughs> the worst the worst would be and i said it too melissa i'm not the worst would be to have a, a direct uh east west and I, I hate using that terminology russia uh and nato confrontation uh, i'm not clear what will happen in the in the in central asia or uh because i i could see that annoying china or worse and in the um in the caucasus not sure but create recreating a pan, a slavic kind of union definitely seems on tap an attempt there and that is again despite what President Putin said about history, and I know that Melissa is going to be able to talk about that. Slavs themselves chose independence in 1991. And um, and so he is he's not understanding history. Melissa, it seems to me that President Biden, leaders in the West, they provided I shouldn't say provided. There were many off ramps leading up to this that, you know, could have been taken and it does. It seems to me like Putin not only didn't take them, but almost kind of gave a middle finger as he went past them. Uh, is there anything more that you feel could have been done to try to stop this? Or is this just he's going to do it? And, you know, unless you want to throw millions of troops in there, there, there's only so much you can do. Yeah, I mean, that's a great question. I think if we look at 2014 with the invasion of Crimea and the annexation of Crimea by Russia, in that case, Obama kept a lot of that quiet. It was very confusing. Obama did not share with the public. The Obama administration did not share with the public um, the secret sort of what was happening, what what the CIA knew, what other um, European allies were sharing with us. So all of that information was kind of secret. It happened very quickly. It was rather confusing. This time, um, you know, Biden tried the opposite strategy, which was to share everything, um, to share everything that the CIA was finding out, that other, you know, our, our, our NATO allies were finding out, that that folks we knew on the ground were finding out. So this was sharing exactly where we're seeing, you know, the troops, uh, you know, Russian troops surrounding Ukraine. We're seeing every kind of movement where, you know, Biden's commenting, okay, it looks like a cyber attack is going to happen. Okay, it looks like this kind of attack is going to happen, you know, sort of really sharing that information with the public. This time, the idea was that that would help to sort of make Putin back down because all of his secrets had been shared. Um, but I would say in the case of the Obama administration and now in the case of the Biden administration, we see that actually both strategies didn't work. Um, were there off ramps for Putin? So many off ramps. And I had really hoped, especially with the with Germany's um, threat to not turn on that pipeline, the Nord Stream 2, which is going to be billions of dollars for Russia. This is a huge economic um, um, you know, impact on Russia that's a positive one for its people for its for its for everything um so i was really surprised that 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 wasn't enough to stop putin lisa we've already had sanctions put on uh there's talk of more sanctions how much damage can sanctions do and i guess the the goal is to make the sanctions targeted so they don't affect the russian people as much as they affect putin and really the oligarchs and uh, with the hope of uh drying things up for them. How effective can sanctions be to maybe curtailing this or limiting this? Well, the the problem with sanctions is that they are a long-term strategy. They, they are going to be a long-term hurt. So 
they don't deliver the kind of response that, frankly, often a democratic public wants, right? To see the impact immediately. It, 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 they're going to be long-term. And, and you're absolutely right. The goal is to hit those people who have influence and power. And that's not simply those who are really in the tight circle, but they are important. I think that the sanctions that um, the UK is considering too, with including, and, and not only considering, have implemented and the Europeans have implemented, they're going after lots of the elite in Russia. And I mean, the wealthy, I, I looked for some data about this uh, because, you know, you think about all the Russians that own luxury apartments in New York City, uh, luxury condos in Florida. I was just looking, if you look at the data of Russians visiting the US, there are about 100, 145 million Russians say. And um, from 2011 to 2020, 2019, before COVID, you have for about 250 million, uh, 250,000 Russians coming per year. We need to, first of all, I would say make those sanctions widespread to hurt the elite and over time, but it is not, it is not going to be rapid. Melissa, uh, how is there a chance Vladimir Putin could overplay his hand? Cause we talk about, you know, the long-term with the sanctions and to Lisa's point about Russians coming to the U S these oligarchs, while they support Putin and enjoy all the, the riches of the oligarchy there, uh, they obviously also love the West when it comes to vacationing, living, sending their kids here, bringing their yachts and stuff like that. If you put the squeeze on the lifestyle, is there a possibility that a lot of these people that the average American doesn't know the name of could turn on Putin or at least put some heat on him uh, because their kid got thrown out of private school in Florida and stuff like that? Is that a possibility? It would have an impact on Putin, but I don't think it would stop him. I think that Putin has been preparing for this for a while. Um, he has been preparing. He has tried to withdraw somewhat um, from the international you know, uh, market by protecting his industries at home. He has been kind of preparing for, for further sanctions for a while now. And I think his oligarchs understand that and the people understand that, um, whether they like it or not. Um, I would say I think the things that could get Putin into the long, like you were sort of saying, you know, what is going to impact Putin in the long term? It are it is these sanctions. I think we could put some even stronger sanctions that are being discussed right now on the table. Um, but I also think that, you know, it, what remains to be seen is the reaction in Ukraine. Are Ukrainians going to put up a really serious fight? Is this going to drag Putin into a long war where we are all seeing images of people being killed? Um, I think, you know, getting back to kind of your earlier question about this, about, you know, the, the connection between these three people is that the Belarusians, the Russians, and the Ukrainians are all Eastern Slavs, and they are the Eastern Slavs, and they have a kind of shared, they have some shared history, some shared culture, some shared religion. Many people in Russia don't want to turn on television and see, you know, Russia killing Ukrainians. It's it's almost like killing your cousin. It doesn't, it just isn't going to sit well with people. So if the Ukrainians are able to keep this invasion, some kind of a long-term, they're, they're fighting, you know, um, urban warfare, they're fighting some sort of guerrilla warfare, they're making this, you know, much longer and harder for Putin. I think that's going to have the biggest impact on, on, on devastating his position in, in, in Russian politics. 
and I'll follow up with you, Melissa. We don't hear much about this. How strong is Ukrainian's military? And I'm not saying that they can go toe to toe with the Russian military, but can you give us some context? You know, is this a group that will be able to uh, at least defend itself for a significant amount of time? Well, I mean, Ukraine has about 200,000 military personnel, official military personnel. Russia has 1 million official military personnel. So we are looking at a really small entity. However, um, Zelensky and uh, and the military has uh, been trying to encourage civilians to come and get arms, to find ways to resist, to participate in some kind of resistance. Um, I don't, obviously, you know, it, Putin has no nuclear weapons, right? He could, he, he, he has the bigger hand here to play. Um, but as we all know, we saw the United States in Afghanistan for 20 years, and then we just pulled out and the Taliban, you know, came back. Um, it doesn't mean that the smaller power won't win in the end. But again, I think as Lisa was saying, and you were saying, this is a long term, it's going to be a long process. It's not something that's going to happen immediately. You mentioned Afghanistan and Lisa, I want to ask you, why now? And did the U.S. pulling out of Afghanistan, was that kind of something that Putin saw and figured now's the time to kind of put this in motion. The, the U S doesn't have the stomach for, for this. And, uh, is there, I guess, why now? Yeah, really good question. Um, I think that Afghanistan and the pullout is part of it, but I think that there Putin had a perception of American weakness that goes back to the Trump administration. And part of it isn't America, just American weakness, but the West's weakness. So the Trump administration in arguing for America first was arguing that we should not maintain our commitments to NATO as it, because we weren't really sure whether NATO was worth it to us. Right. And so Trump brings into question um, right before his summit with Putin in July of 2018, he brings into question whether Article 5, uh, the clause that says an attack against one is an attack against all. He brings into question whether the U.S. will maintain that commitment. And then he goes and has the summit with Putin in which he says, I believe President Putin. Um, and that has repercussions throughout the, it, it ripples through the United States and it ripples back through Europe. And so the question is how reliable a partner is the United States? And also we see the increasing polarization in the US and the increasing popularity among some in the United States about the ideas of America first. And so you have this weakening of the, of the United States as a global actor who, which sees its interests as tied to that of Europe and European defense, as well as the, the issue with Afghanistan. Of course, you know, you know that, that Afghanistan was decided by a different administration and Biden, we can argue, bungled the uh, withdrawal. The other thing I wanted to point out is the vulnerability of some of our our strongest European partners, right? We have 
The UK pulling out of, again, so thinking about the weakening of Europe, we have the UK pulling out of the EU, not out of NATO, but out of the EU, and making it clear that the UK is thinking of itself differently. We have Germany, uh, who, which just went through an, an election, said goodbye to Angela Merkel, who was a very staunch uh, leader in opposition to ready to stand up to Putin and the replacement of her and her coalition, which she dominated with a new coalition of folks who come from uh, the left side, democratic left, and then the greens who have a much different view towards NATO and the United States. So that in a sense, we weren't quite sure what Schultz would do. And then we have France, France who, and, and Macron who is incredibly domestically weak right now and is facing an election in April. And so I think that Putin looked and said, the West is divided, the West is weak, and this is the time to go. Now, I don't think, I, I think so much of this depends on this being Putin. We, we, we just, I, 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 there isn't anything objective about the situation that said, oh, this is the time to strike. But if you are a Putin, this is how you're analyzing it. And you had his ambitions. Melissa, we talked about the oligarchs and if enough pressure, sanctions and such could be put on them. The people of Russia, could we see uprisings? And I know they're clamped down as quickly usually as they come up, but is the possibility that we could see anything from the, the, the common people in Russia against this? Absolutely. I think absolutely. I think it, you know, like you said, it, I mean, Russia has clamped down on opposition so hard. Um, but nevertheless, I think that this could bring out people into the streets to protest for peace. Um, there are so many connections between Ukrainians and Russians. Many people have intermarried. Many people have relatives on both sides of the border. Many people have spent time in each country. Um, I just think that there are a lot of everyday average people who are not interested in this at all. And especially if, like I, you know, I think if this happens really quickly, if somehow, you know, the Russians invade, they, 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 they capture Zelensky and kill him or overthrow him. And this happens in the you know, in a week's time and it's all over, then that's one thing. But if we, if it does process, go into a long-term process, I think Russians are going to definitely protest. Lisa, is there past sanctions? And I would imagine funneling money and weapons to Ukraine. Is there anything else that the U S slash the West can do, uh, short of, you know, going all in and, sending hundreds of thousands of troops in there? Yeah, this is this is a real worry because the extent to which we supply, right, then we become potential combatants too. Um and and so so this is this is really tough. I think what Melissa was saying is really important. If this war is easy for the Russians, then we are talking about a defeated Ukraine, highly repressive Ukraine, as well as Russia. Uh, and in that case, the, the US and the West cannot do very much except to provide, I mean, we're back to 1948 almost, where we, we, we I, I, 
I'm a great fan of George Kennan. And one of the best things about his Mr. X article from 1947 is that he says at a certain point, what we have to do is live our true values. And that is the way that we ultimately defeat them as well as standing up when, when we need, but we, we have defined our lines. Unfortunately for Ukrainians, Ukraine is not in, in our, it's on the wrong side of the line. Uh, and there's very little we can do. And we, we worry about being attacked ourselves, cyber attacks. Um, you know, Putin sought to have deniability, right? That's what he had in 2014, even though he was winking and ultimately he sought to have deniability. And the Biden administration, by providing information, took away his deniability. Um, and that was something I see as, in a, in a sense, very Kennan esque of saying, we are an open society, we believe in the truth, and we're gonna show you for what you are. And, and I, I will tell you that our past mistakes allow Putin to do some of what he's doing, but that's another story. Uh, when we've strayed from having the principles that we, we say we have. Um, I mean, I think one thing too, and you're talking about the sanctions and what else can we do? I think that one of the key things to think about here is that Russia's economy is based on its sale of oil and gas. It's based on its ability to provide its people with cheap oil and gas. Um, it's based, you know, it, 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 the, the, those, these breakaway separatist regions in Ukraine, one of the reasons they exist is because Russia supplies all their oil and gas. Um, so I think targeting that in real sanctions is one of the only ways to really stop Putin. Um, if they, if, it, I mean, Russia is a little bit like Saudi Arabia, if you think about it, in the sense that so much of its economy is based on its ability to export oil and gas. If that is shut off, um, then I think there's a real, there's a real way to stop Putin. Uh, I, you know, Europe gets 30% of its oil and gas from Russia. The United States gets 8% of its oil and gas from Russia. So even 8% is going to hurt the U.S. But um, I think that, that that cutting right into what what um, is, what is the most important piece of the Russian economy is the best way to stop this. How much and I'll ask this to you, Melissa, how much. And I don't want to say enable, but we've known who these oligarchs are, the people that are, you know, helping to prop up the, the Russia. Uh, and we say the right things for the most part. but we still take their money. We still, you know, lavish them when they're in New York city, stuff like that. Uh, was there, is, is there a point where we should have taken a more hard line on that front? And I'm talking year over years, not one administration, not one person, but been a little less uh, welcoming of them and maybe made life a little tougher for them and they in part maybe make life a little tougher for Putin? I mean, that's a great question. I think the problem with the United States, not problem, just the fact of the United States is it's a democracy and we support capitalism. Um, and so if, if New York City, a developer wants to sell, you know, billion dollar apartments to oligarchs in Russia, 
You know, there's not, the government doesn't intervene in that really. Uh, and so for the government to intervene in that, I think is also a kind of heavy hand from the US government in our sort of capitalist economy. So I think it's really difficult to make those kinds of movements. Now, when we're in a very serious political and, you know, crisis where there is a war, then in wartime situation, the government can intervene with a real excuse. But before this happened, I think it would have been, I think it would have been hard. And I think Americans might not have um, taken to that. I don't know, Elisa, you, you've thought about yeah, this. Yeah, I disagree. <laughs> you know, if you look at the Panama Papers and what these journalists have found about these places, and the U.S. is one of them, Delaware. Hello, Senator Biden. Del <laughs> Delaware is a place that has really benefited from having very lax laws investigating the source of of money, right? I, I was so surprised when when I bought a house and was transferring some money and like the same, I, I had to prove, I'm like, wait a minute. No, I only have this much money. It's here and now it's here and I still have to prove it. These people have, uh, you know, the, the amount of money and the source of that money, we have been incredibly lax. And there are lots, not the United, not just the United States, but again, what the Bahamas, uh, the offshore this, accounts. Yeah. yeah, all kinds of. So our, I mean, I think if you talk to a, an accountant uh, who specializes in this, he or she would give you lots of ways that we have made terrible mistakes or some of these investigative journalists and, and allowed for this to happen. But it benefited way too many people here as well as there. Um, and so that is a that is a really big problem. The idea of you know, and and I would argue that in the '90s we fell in love with the idea that that we that we exist in a free market and the quotation marks free market is best. But if you look at what what made the rebuilding of the United States post-World War II. Yes, it was capitalism, but it was a capitalism with regulation. It was a capitalism with support for workers and protecting workers' rights. It was not what happened as we lessened regulation and embraced, and actually that's exactly what we embraced for Russia and for lots of the East Europeans. So we were we were calling for people, we called it Klondike capitalism or the wild west again to say that's, and so when Putin says that the Western advisors led us down this path, he, that's what he's talking about. And, and unfortunately there's, bits of truth in all of his charges they're not really the real you know the real um the, the 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 root but there's always truth and he twists it he is a master i'm curious and this is kind of adjacent but separate how much and i'll ask this to both of you i'll start with lisa do you think china is watching this situation to see how the west reacts with regards to how they approach Taiwan, Hong Kong, stuff like that. Yeah, this is really scary. Uh, I, um, some people believe that 
that the Chinese are going to see this as an opportunity to take, I mean, Hong Kong is gone, right? Hong Kong is, <laughs> that's decided that, that it has been snuffed out. Uh, but Taiwan is the real, is the real worry. Um, and she has certainly been aggressive and believing in his own power too. There are quite some interesting parallels in the way both she and Putin have personalized their power and have created um, their own type of political machines within within their systems. Um, I, I, I can't say I'm not a China specialist, but if, if you're thinking about the weakness or the fact that the United States' attention and the world's attention is on Ukraine, um, but I do believe that China would know that this would also provoke the Japanese and the South Koreans if we're talking in terms of, and provoke them in ways that China could regret. Um, in terms of their development, you know, all of these things that we never thought were possible are now becoming possible because we're violating, you know, we violated the sovereignty norm. Perhaps the Japanese and the South Koreans would um, would decide to to um, pursue nuclear weapons if the if China went after Taiwan. I mean, that's not I'm not advocating that, and that's not what I think the American government would want. But we don't control. Uh, and so these so these steps are 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 dangerous. Melissa, same question to you. Um, I mean, I would say in terms of China is, is really interesting because on because China and Russia share a lot. I mean, they're both authoritarian regimes. They both want to be world powers. They both want to have modern, strong economies. They both want to have some capitalism, but allow the government to control the direction of that capitalism. Um, and I think they have a lot of shared interests. I think one of the things, if we think about, um, you know, Central Asia, for example, so China is seeking right now to build this Silk Road, this, they're recreating the Silk Road, but an actual road that would ship goods from Europe to China through Central Asia. Um, Russia also has very strategic and economic interests in Central Asia. So that's this area that the two are sort of looking to share, um, but with Russia kind of being dominant. I think another area that the two are similar in terms of minorities. Um, Russia has been very oppressive to minorities and so has China. And so both of them don't really want the West coming in and telling them what to do. And I think um, if we think about the sanctions again, and we go back to oil and gas, right? So if Europe somehow really does cut off Russian oil and gas and the United States does, China remains this open market for the oil and gas. And there has been long talks about a pipeline that would go from straight from Russia into China. Um, so China could be the new buyer of Russia's oil and gas and thus keep its economy afloat. Um, but China also has to consider its relations with the United States which is one of its biggest trade partners, its relations with Europe, which it also trades greatly with. Uh, so it's, it's complicated and it, and it remains to be seen what, what China will do in the future. I think it depends on what Putin really, uh, how, how extensive this war goes. And my final question uh, for both of you, I'll start with you, Lisa. What do you think as we're recording this on February 24th at 1030 in the morning, what do you think we should look for over the next couple of weeks? I think look for the level of Ukrainian resistance, look for Russian citizens to see if they do uh, go into the streets and how they are met with 
you know, what meets them in terms of police force. I think we look to see how well Europe stays together. And I think we look to the uh, US in the domestic political arena, how united are um, our Americans around the, uh, the, the president's policy? To what extent are people giving what I would call useful criticisms or what I would call um, purely partisan criticisms for advantage? This is a really, this is a serious moment in American history. This is a time when we face a terrible challenge um, and and how we meet it domestically is is really important. So that's what I would say. I would agree completely with my list. I know, I'm sorry. <laughs> I have things, of course I have things, you know, it's like, I feel like with professors, we always have something to say, don't worry. Um, <laughs> um, I would say everything, I agree completely with what Lisa said. I think also we need to look to see what NATO, the United States, the EU and Britain's response is going to be to this. Are they going to send more military aid? Are they going to send financial aid? Are they going to accept refugees? I mean, we hear right now on the radio, you hear on, you know, I was just listening to the BBC this morning, which has a lot of journalists on the ground in Ukraine, and they're watching people get in their cars and try to flee. So is there going to be a refugee crisis? Are people going to try to leave? Um, many people can't leave because, of course, Putin targeted the airports first. So I'm going to I'm very curious to also see, as Lisa said, what's going to be the Ukrainian act- reaction. Um, I think as we were just speaking, what's China's reaction going to be? Putin really does need to have a strong partnership with China. And so China's reaction is going to be important. Um, I think what Putin's actual plans for Ukraine is also going to be interesting. He hasn't really laid that out to us. Is his intention absolutely to overthrow the government? Is it to just create chaos? Is he going to back out eventually and just want those two regions, the Donetsk and Luhansk regions? Um, or, or what is his plan here? Is he Does he want to actually make Ukraine a part of Russia or does he want to make it some kind of puppet state and bring in a new you know, puppet president? Um, and then lastly, I think with Belarus is a really interesting question. Um, there are are so many Russian troops in Belarus right now, and people are really wondering, what does that actually mean? Is Belarus going to become a part of Russia? Uh, is you know Putin just going to control Belarus? It seems to have no independence in, in, in what's happening right now. Belarus under Lukashenko did remain neutral in 2014. Um, this time around, Lukashenko has no choice. Russian troops are on Belarus, Belarusian soil, uh, and what's going to happen to Belarus's sovereignty, I think, is also really in question here. That's it for this episode of KYW News Radio In Depth. You can listen to the podcast free anytime on the Odyssey app, and you can find it wherever you listen to your favorite shows. I'm Matt Leon, and we'll have another episode out soon.